Hello, everybody. I'm Harrison, the associate pastor here, and it's an honor to be with you and bring God's Word this morning. Um, so, uh, before we dive into this passage, in the 16th century, uh, Niccio Machiavelli wrote a treatise called The Prince that, that answered the question, how do we hold power in our lives? How do we rightly exercise our power? Did anybody read this book in school, by chance? This is a crazy book. Uh, this book is uh, um, How to Hold Power with a Totally Selfish Mindset, um, with focusing on the leader, the one with the power, staying safe, staying in control, maintaining that power without regard for the morality of the actions that he's taking or the consequences for others that are underneath his power, that, that, who he has to hurt to maintain it. He encourages these leaders to exercise deception, uh, to be cruel, to strive more to be feared than to love, to be loved if you have to choose, and to use whatever means necessary basically to dominate the people under you to the point where they will be obedient. A new word came from this book, Machiavellian, uh, which means someone who lives out what's in the book, uh, who lacks morals and vice for power in their own lives. And this book is a classic that we read a lot, and the reason is, I think, because we live and operate in a Machiavellian world, where for many, actually being selfish and competitive with our power is seen as good. You want to climb the ladders of life to more power, beat out the man or woman beside you, become great, make your mark on the world, find fulfillment. We live in a world like this, and it's even led some philosophers like Nietzsche to think every human action is a selfish power play. It's underneath all of our desires and choices. So it's not hard to look at, at this book and those in, with power today and realize that we desperately need somebody to teach us how to hold our power. Somebody besides Machiavelli. You don't need to be a prince or a politician or a CEO to have power. Uh, right now, you might be over an intern at work. You might be a parent of a bunch of very little humans that you have a lot of power over. You may be an older member of our church with a lot of relational power. You might be an older brother or sister that has a lot of power over, over your little brother. And you might also be just a friend with a lot of influence over those around you. Plus, we all have money. We all have time. We have voices. We have hands and feet. Uh, we have energy. All of these things give us some kind of power in our lives. And the question is, how are we as Christians to our passage today? And he does so in a way that shocks his disciples. He sits with them at the Last Supper. It's his last big moment with them before they become powerful leaders in his church. Really, when you think about it, these are some of the most powerful and influential people in all of history. Apostles of the kingdom of God, guys who uh, were responsible to start churches uh, all over Roman Asia, to, to write letters and testimonies that will still be read and submitted to 2,000 years later by 2 billion people today in the world. And as you would expect, as you know from the Gospels, this power had already started to go to their heads as soon as he called them as disciples. They argued constantly about who was the greatest among them. They secretly went to Jesus and were like, hey, can me and him be number two and three in your kingdom after you? You know, here's $20. You're looking great, uh, by the way. What do you think? Um, they also... Uh, they also uh, could not wrap their minds around the cross because they were so focused on Jesus grabbing power from Rome and establishing a powerful earthly kingdom. And so to these future Machiavellian leaders, Jesus must teach them how to rightly hold their power. And we need him to teach us too. And he does so this morning through a really symbolic action that gives us a concept of power and of leadership that the world cannot have dreamed of 
uh, a Machiavellian world could not have envisioned. So how do we hold our power? We're going to see two things this morning. One, you must be a servant. And two, you must be washed by the servant. You must become a servant. You must be washed by the servant. Let's pray. Father, uh, we um, are told in your word that your word is uh, more to be desired than gold. It is something sweeter than honey that trips from the honeycomb. Um, And Lord, as we come to this text this morning, for many of us, it's familiar. um, But Lord, we, we struggle to live it. And so... You never stop bringing it before us. And I pray, uh, Lord, that you would um, hit us in a fresh way, that we would taste that honeycomb, that we would see the desirous nature of it. Um, and, Lord, that we would be transformed by that. Um, Lord, that we would live our lives differently this week as a result. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, how do we hold our power? You must become a servant. Look with me in, in verse 3 of this text. If you got your um, worship guide, it's in there. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, the NIV says here, puts all things under his power, which is what having all things in his hands means. It means that he's got power over everything. That he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So John is saying here, Jesus knew that he is the leader of literally all things. The entire universe, every person who has ever lived, is under his command. He's from God, going back to God, meaning the second person of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, God himself, knowing all that personal power. In a sense, not just in spite of knowing that, it's rather because he knows all that, as a result of knowing all that, he rose from supper. And then what happens next? He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. In this moment, Jesus is adopting the dress of a menial slave a slave that was very much looked down upon by Jews and Gentiles alike. So he puts on a shameful garment. And then he poured water into a basin and kneels down and begins to wash the disciples' feet as they sit there at dinner. No words, no explanation for this. Washing feet was something in their culture that would happen when you came into a house from being outside, and it was a task reserved for the most menial slave. And actually, Jews, many Jews believe that Jewish slaves shouldn't wash feet. It was too demeaning for a slave, a Jewish slave, to do it. They reserved it just for Gentile slaves. We'll let them do it. Jewish slaves don't do it. Uh, it's because their feet were gross. Uh, they walked around, you know, on, on the roads where animals walked around and pooped. And so there's mud and fecal matter and all this kind of stuff mixed in together on these, on these roads. And so the person washing the feet will be getting, getting involved in all that on your feet. In one historical account, a rabbi's mom uh, tried to wash his feet, and he refused to let her do it. it was, he thought it was too demeaning for her, and she took him to court because she, she wanted to wash his feet. Uh, but that was how low they viewed it. He was like, no, Mom, I will not allow you to do this. But here Jesus was, the one whom God put all things under his power, the second member of the Trinity, God himself taking on the dress of that menial slave, getting down on his knees and washing their feet. And how does Jesus eventually explain this action? Look down in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. 
If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So in their culture, it would be unthinkable for a servant to be unwilling to do an action that the master was willing to do. And so Jesus is like, if I, your Lord, your master, the one with unlimited power, am willing to wash your feet to become a servant for you, to do this demeaning act, then you now must be willing to become a servant for the disciple next to you. Basically, he's taking away their excuses, saying, you aren't greater than me, are you? No servant is greater than his master, and I, the master, have become a servant for you, so now I command you, you have to become a servant for one another. Here's the thing. It's not just Jesus' one act of foot washing that puts this demand on our lives as his servants. It's actually his his entire existence, his whole life, uh, is one of servanthood. It takes away our excuses. In in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, Have your mind and yourselves of Christ, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be ambitiously grasped at, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so to Paul, it was Jesus' birth as a man, his suffering as a man, and his death as a man that were an act of service from the master to the servant. And it takes away our excuses for doing anything besides having the same mind that Jesus has. Our master voluntarily used his power to win us back by becoming a servant. And now we have to do the same. Andy Crouch, uh, one of, an author I, I like, has a, a book on power called Playing God. Um, it's got a cool jacket probably, but I never keep the jacket, so this is what I got. Um, and I, I highly recommend it. He notices something in this story that is, is important for, for us understanding this. And he says, Jesus' servanthood here is not the opposite of his power, but rather his servanthood is the very purpose of his power. And not just the purpose of his power, it's also the purpose for all power. Think about it. It's how God used his power ever since the beginning, creating and animating all things by the word of his power. It's how Adam and Eve were meant to be rulers of creation, made in God's image to do what? To be gardeners, to get down on their knees and tend and serve the plants and the animals to help them flourish. Those with power we're always meant to be servants. And I think what this means is if you think about power, like physical, electrical power, we are like generators. I've been thinking about generators a lot lately because our power goes out all the time uh, and we have to figure out a way to get it back on. Generator, uh, with a generator, the power is an inherently good thing. In a power outage, the whole house relies on the generator for power, for heat, for light, for the food in the fridge and freezer. And it would be unthinkable if, if somebody were to take their generator and rewire it to where all the power is going out of it actually comes right back into the generator. Like, I want this generator to be so powerful. I'm going to just keep sending it right back in. Your generator, if you could do that, would just explode at some point, right? Just to send all that power right back to itself. And many of us fall into that, that camp when we have power. It's like, I just want more of it. I want to use it for me. It would also be unthinkable for a generator 
to say, for master to say, oh, I just don't think it's got too much power in of itself. Like it would be better if it was just a cord or something. I'm just going to dismantle it and make it like, you know, something without power in of itself, like a cord. Your whole house would not have any power as a result. The generator's power is good. The answer is not to get rid of its power, but rather to use its power in service of all the things that it was made to do. And so your power is good, and you were fired up as a generator by God for a reason. And God plugged you into the circuit board with wires going out to a lot of other people and a lot of other things in this world. And he set it up so you could be a servant of those less powerful things. And they need you for that. God gives you power that you might light up other people's lives. And it's because the generator Jesus did that for you, now you have to go do that for others. And so what might it look like for you to be a generator in your life today? For those of you who are married, you carry a lot of power in your spouse's life. I wonder when you get in the car to go home from church today, what would it look like for you to use your God-given power, your words, your free time, your hands and feet, your energy, to use that to turn on your spouse's lights? That is the purpose of your power. It might mean doing the dishes if they like a clean kitchen. It might be running to be the first to change a diaper. It might be running to take the trash out. It might be saying a needed word of encouragement to them. Thank you for rallying our our family on Sunday mornings. You are doing such a great job. You are her generator or his generator. And this is how you exercise the true power that God's given you in a a longer-lasting way, in a powerful way. If you're an older sibling in here, how might you use your God-given power, your influence over your younger siblings to help them light up? Hey, little Johnny, I want to play your game this afternoon. I want to see you light up, and I want to meet you on your level, and I want to see that happen. Instead of using my power to dominate you, I want to use my power to serve you. God made me for this. Those who are single or empty nesters in here, how can you use your power, your free time, your wisdom, your energy to light up those around you, to light up our church this week. Hey, Betsy, I love to serve with the most insane kids that go here. Where do you want me? <laughs> I want to be a servant. Parents, how can you use your power to light up your kids? Hey, pee goes in the potty, not on the floor. But listen, I know that you will learn to use the potty. I believe in you. And I'm going to be with you cleaning this up until you learn it. We're going to do that together. I I know you can. That is true power exercised in service. And its impact is designed by God to be more powerful and more long-lasting than the Machiavellian way of turning that back in on yourself. It's the true power. So that's the first thing. How do we hold our power? The first thing Jesus says is we must become a servant like him. Now let me be honest with you guys. It's very hard for me to do this without becoming resentful. Um, I'm inherently a selfish person. It goes against every instinct of mine to to do this. I can do it like a couple times. It's beautiful. And then like the 20th time, I'm like, okay, all right. Now we need to start changing things around here. Um, Plus we know that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've seen that happen so many times. And so the question is, how can we remain servants of others in the midst of our sinfulness? 
And that leads us to our second point Jesus gets to is you must be washed by the servant. You must be washed by the servant. So look with me now at the middle of the passage, uh, Jesus' conversation with Peter. It's kind of cryptic here in verse 6. Peter is shocked that Jesus is washing his feet. Remember how countercultural this was. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, uh, basically, I'll tell you in a minute. Just let me do it first. All right. Um, and then Peter's stubborn, classic Peter. He insists, um, you shall never wash my feet. He's like the rabbi in that story. You shall never do it. You're powerful. You're a leader that's beneath you. I won't allow it. And Jesus says something that feels kind of out of place in the story. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus loves symbolism. And washing here becomes a symbol for another washing that we know about, talked about often in Scripture. It's a one-time bath, cleansing from sin that each of us must go through to have an inheritance with Jesus. Paul describes it in, in Corinthians. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit, have a share in the kingdom of God. No one who lives in sin and that dirtiness will have a share with Jesus. And Paul continues, And such were some of you, but you were washed. Past tense. Single moment. You were sanctified, past tense, single moment. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And this is the washing that Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus is saying there's no inheritance with him, no eternal life with him, no belonging with him. Basically, you can't come into my house with those, all that dirt that you got on you. i got to wash you first. You must become a new creation. Your old self must die. Your new self must be born again. And I wonder, does anyone in here need that bath today? Jesus makes clear there's no inheritance with him without that bath. And Peter first realizes this in the nature of his own sin and replies, uh, not, not my feet only, Lord, get my hands and my head. Get all, there's sin all over me. Look at me. And now Jesus says another cryptic statement. He shifts it a little bit in verse 10. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. So here's another symbol, is that Jesus assures Peter of his justification. He says, hey, you've, you've taken your bath. Um, you've had that once only cleansing of a lifetime of sin. And he actually says, is referring to Judas here, which he talks about a number of times in the passage. Judas has actually not had that bath. Judas never gets that bath. He says, not every one of you have had that, but you have, Peter. Um, so you don't need to do that again, but don't miss this. Peter does need Jesus to wash those dirty feet still. Though Peter is a believer, he has gotten dirty from roaming around in a fallen world. He still has sin present in his life. And Jesus, his washing of the feet of Peter signifies confession of sin and assurance of pardon that must happen often in the life of a believer. John later fleshes this out in 1 John when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, wash our feet of all the unrighteousness. It's also what David means in Psalm 51 when he says, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This means Jesus is saying, you Christians still need me to wash you. They're smaller You have to do it a lot, but they matter to me, and they matter to you. 
You still need me to wash you. Now the question is, what is all this talking in the middle of a passage clearly about power and about servanthood? What is all this talk about washing doing in the middle of it? How does, how does this connect to us using our power well? And so I want to um, help you understand how this connects to servanthood and power with an illustration, which I'll start by doing it and explain to you later, kind of like Jesus does in the story. Imagine my hands and feet right here are covered with mud. All right, I wrestled with whether to have real mud on my hands, and Jordan's like, just make it. Just Andy, Andy, Jordan said this, but I was like, I don't want to do it to Andy Dovin. All right, he's going to be here. Um, he, he cares for our facilities. Um, okay, so hands and feet covered in mud, and I'm going to go about my job in my place of power, walking over. Hey, Todd. Welcome to church, man. Glad to see you, buddy. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Angela. Hey, great to have you. Great to have you. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, good. Hey, Paul. How's it going, buddy? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Okay. Uh, yeah. What's up, man? Good to see you, Drew. Um, what's wrong with this picture? I'm tracking mud everywhere I'm walking. I'm getting mud and filth on everybody that I'm touching. Jesus is saying, how can you wash others' feet when you are covered in dirt? How can you serve others when you yourself are so dirty? Everyone the apostles would come into contact with, they weren't washed. They would track it into every person's home, into every church they went. Um, Jesus wants them to hold their power and to be clean. And guess what? He thinks it's possible to do that. How? It's him regularly washing the dirt off you that got on you. The dirt that you don't want anyone to see. The dirt that ruins your life and the lives of those around you. He can wash that off. And then you can go around and effectively wash other people. Let me ask you this. What dirt are you tracking around with you this morning? I want you to pause and think for a minute. What dirt are you carrying around? What might you need Jesus to wash off you? Might there be a place in your life that you need to apologize to somebody for for bringing dirt onto their hands and face? I know know for me today, it's a, a lack of thankfulness. Cynicism that refuses to see the good in certain, certain situations that only focuses on the bad, and I can track that all over my family members. But here's the good news. Jesus assumes that you and I have dirt like this. He assumes it. Whether we're Christian or not, it's part of our experience in this fallen world. It's part of our condition. John says, if you say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But Jesus is saying, just because you have dirt on you doesn't mean you have to be dirty today. When is the last time, another question, when is the last time that you really went to Jesus to be washed? When is the last time you laid your sins before him with your whole heart, shed tears over them, you begged for forgiveness to be free of them once and for all? When is the last time you really felt clean and free of shame? Have you ever felt God separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west? Have you ever seen him bury your sins in the depths of the sea, 
place that no man can go find? Have you ever seen him sing over you like he sings over his one and only son? Jesus doesn't want you to waste any more time in your dirt. Go to him to be washed. We do it in church every, every time. Confession assurance. Sometimes you might just be mouthing it. But Jesus wants you to really get washed. And if once you do, you, now you're ready to hold your power, to send out clean energy to others. This is the only way that we can protect ourselves from being corrupted by the power we have. It's only through the supernatural washing of Jesus. So how do we hold our power? One, we said we, you must become a servant. And second, you must be washed by the servant. I'm going to conclude with this. Many of us in here have been doing this for a long time. And you, like me, you get tired of, of trying to do this. You fall back into old ways. And so wondering what, what can motivate the generator to keep going when the gas tank is running low. Is there anything in this process that's for the generator? It's a pretty selfless lifestyle we're, we're talking about. What's, what about the generator? Jesus ends this uh, teaching by saying, look at, look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is a, a promise of happiness, actually, and it flips our world on its head because we're often tempted to think that the blessed, happy life is in hoarding our power, right? So if I can just be like Jeff Bezos, make billions of dollars, keep it all for myself, get that yacht, that's what, that's what happy, happiness looks like. And Jesus says, no. I promise you, the happy life is falling on your knees before your neighbor and using your power to rinse the mud off their feet. And do you know this is... I wonder if you've ever felt this before, actually, in your life. How does it feel to spend a lot of time picking out the perfect gift for someone you love, spend a lot of money on it, it's expensive, but then to see their face light up when they open that gift and to realize that they're getting something they've always dreamed of? How did that feel for you? When you did that, how does it feel to see your child come alive because they learned something that took you weeks and weeks to teach them, being patient with them, sitting with them? How does it feel for you to see them get so happy because they can do it all by myself? How does it feel to see a tear come down the cheek of your sick older parent because you haven't left their side during their suffering? If you're like me, in those moments, there's deep feelings of goodness and beauty that overwhelm you. And the reason why is because you are a generator. Jesus promises you, I made you for this. When you function properly, you light up too as the generator. That's where the blessing is. So today, let that blessing motivate you when you go out from here. Let's pray. Father, um, we, seeing this calling, seeing Jesus wash our feet, not just that, Lord, seeing him come as a man, live and die as a servant of us. Lord, we're not worthy of it. Um, we feel inequipped and inexperienced to do that ourselves. We need you, Jesus. We need your spirit to do this. We need you to remind us often this week. We need that blessing. We need to taste it this afternoon, Lord, when we go and we try this very first tiny attempt that we make, Lord, would you give us a huge blessing in that, that it reinforces us, oh yeah, this is good, this is how you made me. And Lord, would you make us a church of servants, not just for this church, Lord, but for our city, 
as we, as we love and care for, bring about the flourishing of the city. Give us wisdom how to use our power to help um, those around us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.